uh, Andrew Sorkin asked this this question. He's like, what do, what do your lawyers think that you should be doing? And Sam's like, oh, obviously the lawyers don't think I should be here. I'm ignoring all of the advice of my lawyers. I'm just going to call bullshit on that. I think Sam has a world-class crisis management firm. And I'm going to, I agree. Nick Carter tweeted this out. I completely agree with it. He has a world-class crisis management firm and legal team constructing a very specific, very deliberate public narrative right now. And I think he's using mainstream media journalists to promote a specific message here. I think we're recording now. Uh, welcome back to another episode of uh, of Empire. Um, yeah, been a casual, another casual week in crypto coming off uh, SBF, talking to the New York Times and Sorkin yesterday. Um, yeah, welcome back, Santi. How you doing, man? Doing great. Uh, we were talking about this just before, but it seems like it's still a fairly busy week, but not as crazy as the past ones. Um, and uh, But yeah, a lot of my days now have been spent talking to founders and a lot of people reached out just... I don't know. I think this is a time where a lot of people just want to talk and reflect with close acquaintances. And it's only been helpful for me. Uh, like I've, I remember doing this like in the past cycles of just talking, staying close to founders and people that, you know, um, I think are, are true believers and true builders. And, uh, you know, this time around, I've uh, most of my day has been spent talking to them. And it's just a good reminder, refresher um, of, uh, you know, the staying power of the industry and and why we're all doing this. Yeah. Uh, how about you? Good, man. I got really excited seeing the Spotify rap yesterday. Not, not because I got to see, uh, <laughs> we did a funny thing at Blockworks. We, um, uh, someone at Blockworks posted their Spotify wrapped and then everyone else shared their Spotify wrapped. And I was like, it was really mm -hmm. funny seeing everyone else's Spotify wrapped, but it was, but actually it was really cool seeing how many people shared on Twitter. Like that's that empire is their most listened to podcast. And that was cool. And actually, I don't know if you clicked that link I sent you, Spotify gives podcasters a Spotify rap to show to talk about the audience and who's listening to your show and stuff like that. And there are thousands of people whose number one podcast is Empire, which was just a trip. It was just crazy to see. So wow. I was yeah, just feeling really grateful for to everyone who listens to the show. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank. We always do this at the end, but it, it means a lot. Like, I mean, certainly we're like, I think when you and I started doing this, it wasn't we didn't have like a specific, oh, we're not like at the top of the league table. This is going to be deemed a failure. I didn't come into this with a specific goal in mind to be the number one podcast in crypto. Then, you know, I just wanted to do this because education, I think, is super important. And if there's like one listener, that's fine. Um, but uh, it's obviously nice to see that there are more than one listener if there's one if there's one listener i'm i don't know if i'm doing this show for a whole nother year if we have one listener <laughs> i'm kidding i know well, what you're yeah but yeah i mean like uh, i still remember there's a great great <laughs> youtube like andreas antonopoulos i think is one of the best educators in the space and he's been doing it for such a long time i know time. the video you're talking about where he's you know, in the you know room the video where he's like he's in the room, in the like, room like, talking about bitcoin people talking about bitcoin yeah oh that's so yeah. good so good i yeah. always see the, i always think about that yeah. When I'm doing this stuff, not that I compare myself to Andreas, Andreas is a whole new league and he's just, uh, yeah. but I think, you know, if we can help one people, one person or two or three or five, that's all that really matters. I mean, it, it's like very rewarding to see yeah. that, you know, people are enjoying the show. Yeah. Got a big year planned. We're almost done with, um, next time you come to New York, uh, you should check it out. We're almost done with our podcast studio. So Blockworks got an office, new office, uh, in Manhattan and we're almost done with our podcast studio. I just, I just demoed it. But uh, it's looking it's looking real nice, yeah. So, um, all right, here's what here's uh here's what's on tap this week. SBF did this interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Dealbook Conference. So, just want to get your takes on that. Uh, talk about that a bit. I've 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 some thoughts on it. Um, BlockFi bankruptcy. Uniswap rolled out Uniswap NFT, uh, their marketplace. Uh, Hut Eight is pulling out of some of their shutdown. I think twenty percent of their mining. Uh, their rigs or just turned off 20% of their hash power. Um, Apple would not let Coinbase uh, ship their latest app release, actually, because of some because uh, they want basically Coinbase to pay 30% of the, uh, the the Apple fee. They want to give app, uh, Apple their 30% fee on the gas. Sir, or, that's the gas fee. That's not the, gas the, fee. That's yeah, not the commission. <laughs> uh, there's tech layoffs. And then actually Casa, which is... Probably a lot of people don't know about CASA, but I want to talk about CASA as well. So I don't know. I doubt we'll get to all of that, but where do you want to start? I think in that order. Sounds about right. All right. 
All right, let's get creative with it. So, all right, so Sam Bankman-Fried did this one-on-one interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin as part of New York Times' Dealbook Conference late on Wednesday. Um, pulled out some quotes from from that conversation. If anyone watched it, first off, he like he got on. I thought he was gonna like look nicer. He got on. He's still looking pretty disheveled. Like he had this, you know, black T-shirt on that. You know when you can tell when someone like chews the front of their shirt a lot because it's kind of like hanging down and stuff. Like he kind of had that look on the T-shirt. Within like 10 minutes, his right arm was shaking a lot. Um, his hair was looking kind of messy. I thought that he would get the memo that like he should have probably looked nicer. Um, but uh, pulled out some quotes. Here, here, here are a couple. I'm just going to read them. The time I really knew there was a problem was November 6th. He said, I didn't, co- I didn't knowingly commingle funds. He said, I wasn't running Alameda. I didn't know exactly what was going on. I didn't know the size of their position. He said, I made a lot of mistakes. I never tried to commit fraud. Um, so for, first off, I think Andrew Ross Sorkin did a, did like a B, like a really good job. Actually, I would say I, I would, I will give Andrew Ross Sorkin credit. I think he did a really good job. He asked some hard hitting questions. There were times I wanted him to dig in a little more. Um, but that's just, I mean, it's, it's a tough interview. Um, and I, and I will give him credit. I think he did a really good job. I mean, Sam basically, it, first off, it was astonishing that he spoke. First of all, it was like just astonishing that he spoke. I think that the. I was really, by the end of it, I was pretty upset with the interview because he had the audience laughing, actually, which was the most important part of the whole interview that people aren't talking about. He had the audience laughing at two different points. Um, and so first he like l- had them laughing and then he started talking about his charities and it kind of panned to the audience and the audience was like smiling, like not like, oh, this guy's a clown, but like, oh yeah, like this guy is a ch- charity guy. And then he had them laughing again and like, man, and then... uh Who is it? Kevin O'Leary. Okay. So then Bill Ackman tweets out. He said, call me crazy, but I think SBF is telling the truth. Then Kevin uh, Kevin O'Leary tweets out. He goes, I lost millions as an investor in FTX, got sandblasted as a paid spokesman for the firm. But after listening to that interview, I'm in the Bill Bill Ackman camp about the kid. Ah, man. Like I, it's just really upsetting seeing those takes and they're just wrong. It's just, it's, those are horrible takes in my mind. Yeah, like I consider myself a fairly optimistic, like op, like an optimist by heart. That's why I love technology. But mm-hmm. I think this year has been really tough, perhaps tougher than like other bear markets. Because when you look at this, it's just like uh, first of all the the behavior of SBF and just FTX is it's like you lose a lot of trust in in like the good natureness of certain human beings, but then like. The fact that he's been so able to just craft a narrative around his persona in spite of everything that has transpired. And like, there's still a certain pocket of people that like, I don't know, having high regard, it's, it's just crazy to see. Uh, and it, like a lot of the conversations I've had recently are with people outside of crypto. Like you go to Thanksgiving dinner. I'm sure a lot of people had a difficult conversation. Uh, you know, you go two years of having great conversations. You're the most popular person in a party because you're in crypto when you're in a bull market. And then you're like, oh, sorry, you're in crypto or people just like in bear markets. And now I think a lot of people like are asking these questions around FDX because there's a lot of retail that got hurt. But it's just so crazy that like there is still some discussion around whether this was like fraud or not. He's been like anyone that has just read that he's done like the first interview with a friend of his. Uh, who was supposed to be off the record, like you just read that and how can you just come out of that and like still have sympathy for the guy and not think that he's an absolute, like, you know, he committed, he's a sociopath and a criminal. Like it's really difficult to like be in a room with people that still don't believe that or have some sort of hope that he was like doing the right thing or I don't know, man. It's very, you almost wonder like this, this is not inherent to crypto and it's just like, yeah, it's it's really me, sad. To yeah, see. yeah. So Henry Blodgett, who was uh, C- CEO of uh, Business Insider for a while, he he tweeted out this thing and just pissed me off. He's like, "FTX's collapse doesn't mean that someone committed a crime. They were a highly leveraged financial institution. Their assets plummeted in value while their liabilities stayed the same. This happens all the time. Uh, is it incompetent? Is it reckless? Is it stupid? Yes, it's not necessarily criminal. This is the narrative that is being painted, and this is why I think." That's that SBF probably won't face 
time in prison or much time in prison, which which just kills me. And um, this is the narrative that's trying to be painted. So you have the Wall Street Journal article, like New York Times, obviously horrendous co- coverage. It's also a Wall Street Journal article that bemoaned the loss of like charitable donations from FTX. Um, you had Vox co-founder Matthew Iglesias um, just kind of whitewashing his own entanglements by crediting uh, SBF's money with helping Dems in the 2020 elections, um, kind of sidestepping the fact that the money was probably was likely uh, effect, effectively embezzled. But I think, um, yeah, there's like a lot of outlets right now that are describing and a lot of people then now starting to believe that like what happened to FTX was either a bank run or a run on deposits or that they were just over leveraged or that the company was disorganized and that it was a result of mismanagement rather than uh, malfeasance. And that is just categorically wrong. This is, uh, I I think it's abundantly clear now that what happened to FTX and Alameda involved a variety of really conscious, really intentional uh, fraudulent decisions that were intended to steal money from users and from investors. And this should not be seen as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I I think it's criminal activity and um, I am lost hope in the system um, that at some point, you know, records will come out and the proper investigation is going to be done. Um, so, but I think it's important for, for everyone to continue to apply pressure and demand yeah. that, you know, the truth comes out. And so I think, um, you know, this is where like a lot of people come out and say, well, crypto and just investors have like a goldfish memory. And like, look, it's only been a couple of weeks and, you know, I don't want to say like we should talk about SBF all the time and FTX all the time, but I do think it's important to like remember these things because, you know, less than a year ago you were, or like over a year ago, you remember the Quadriga example, right? And like, uh, you know, a lot of times it's like ex- like when you dig deeper into the history of someone, you're like, well, this person actually committed crime before and then he was able to somehow be, come back from the dead and like raise money, do another venture and then rug again. And so it's yeah. like, fool me once, like, shame, what is it? Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me or something like this. Um, like, I don't know. It's uh, I don't know what we can do as an industry other than like, of course, keep applying pressure. We'll continue yeah. to do this here and report on it and talk about it. Um, I don't, I don't know what we can do as an industry, but I will just say it's really frustrating seeing mainstream media push this narrative. Um, and like lean into this narrative. Like wh- why did New York times have him at their, at their event? Well, because a, the event, there were $2,500 tickets you could buy to the event, but B to watch the thing, you had to sign up for a New York times account. So it, it drove a lot of subs- right. uh, free accounts, not subscriptions, but free accounts. The here, Sa- Sam kept saying, you, d- you didn't watch it, but Sam kept saying, he's like, I'm ignoring, he's like, uh, Andrew Sorkin asked this, this question. He's like, what do, what do your lawyers think that you should be doing? And Sam's like, oh, obviously the lawyers don't think I should be here. I'm ignoring all of the advice of my lawyers. I'm just going to call bullshit on that. I think Sam has a world-class crisis management firm. And I'm going to, I agree. Nick Carter tweeted this out. I completely agree with it. He has a world-class crisis management firm and legal team constructing a very specific, very deliberate public narrative right now. And I think he's using mainstream media journalists to promote a specific message here. Um, And Nick had this good point. He's like, perceived intent matters a lot here, right? Like manslaughter is a lot less worse than first degree premeditated murder. And so Sam is trying to change the narrative from like, you planned all of this. This was malicious intent from day one to, man, I really, really, really did mess up. This is horrible. I feel so bad, but like, I didn't plan for it to go this way. It was mismanagement. We were young and it's, it's working. It's, it's working. Yeah. So. Um, you know, for anyone that, uh, I'll, I guess I'll try to be as objective as possible now, go, like as always, but I think just look no further, just read the transcript of that initial interview you did with Vox, right? That reporter who is a friend of his and, you know, we should probably link it in the show notes because j- just read it, go, go in there. And, and when he gets asked, you know, a couple of times, like he's, he's very cynical about like wokeism and like certain comments around, um, you know, why he's doing effective altruism and basically kind of in a way just admits like, this is just a full facade. Um, and 
is a person that has no regard for other people uh, and, and has sort of a distorted delusional view of, of what the right version of the world should be. And he sort of has taken on a crusade and at all costs, which include, you know, uh, could include criminal activities. Just someone that is so self-absorbed in what he thinks is the right thing and has no regard for institutions for other people. Um, and it's just verbatim from his his own kind of comments. And so read that. And, and I guess the question is for listeners is after you, you read that, is this someone that you would trust? And is this someone that you would kind of believe anything he says after that? Yeah. And I'll just leave it to listeners to, to go in and do that on their own account and then reflect on that. Uh, because I think that's very telling. Yeah. Move on. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the the, the, lot, the only thing, uh, there's a couple, there will be some hearings that are starting. Uh, I think he's called at a Texas court on early next year, around February, I believe. Um, several other agencies are probing. Uh, I th- believe it's, you know, including the CFTC, Department of Justice. So... You know, back to your original comment, I think there's this is going to take time to do the full kind of forensics and uh, subpoenas and all that stuff and investigations from a number of agencies, a number of jurisdictions. I mean, there's over a million creditors across the world. And so including BlockFi suing them, or I guess suing SBF or the entity that SBF used to buy a lot of the shares in in Robinhood. Um because that's valued at a pretty meaningful account. I believe BlockFi had all of their assets or a lot of their assets up to 350 million stuck or has stuck in FTX. And so they're going after that particular claim to recover some of the funds uh, because um, you know BlockFi lent against that. So I guess yeah. this is a good transition into BlockFi because there's a few events that happen. Yeah, let's talk about BlockFi. Before that, just on the hearings, I'm I'm at the office today. You might be able to hear some New York traffic behind me, but I'm at the office and across the table is uh, one of our reporters and she's watching one of the hearings, not an SPF hearing, but just some something, some hearing going on in DC right now. And apparently someone said, they're like, we think that we should just stop the crypto industry until we can get a handle on regulation. Let's just pause everything. It reminded me of when Zuckerberg was uh, at that hearing and the reg and like someone who's like a senator was like, Oh, like, how do you make money? But your product is free. But then how do you make money? It's like, there's just like such a <laughs> level of gross uh, misunderstanding of how things yeah. work. Anyways, BlockFi. Um, yeah. I, so here's the update uh, on BlockFi on BlockFi on Monday, BlockFi filed its petition for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Um, after weeks, there's kind of, obviously there's weeks of speculation that BlockFi was going to be unable to continue operating in the wake of the FTX filing for bankruptcy on November 11th. That people realized that probably BlockFi was next to go. Um, uh, BlockFi has it's come out that BlockFi has more than a hundred thousand creditors. They owe their largest, their fifty largest creditors. I think the number is 1.3 billion dollars. Uh, it's estimated. That BlockFi has about has between these are big number big range here, but between one billion to ten billion in assets. Um, that doesn't make sense. That's ass- that number. Well, it, it, that number comes from the Chapter Eleven normal filing, where basically the range. It's just a, a checklist thing that you have to disclose of like where you fall. Do you have one million to a hundred million, a hundred million to a yeah, billion? Yeah. I see. Got it. Yeah, I don't um, think they have ten billion. I think it's closer to a billion for what it's worth. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, man, there's a who's Ankara Trust Company. They have a seven hundred and thirty million dollar unsecured claim. So, just looking at the creditors here, the company's largest creditors um, include FTX US. They have a two hundred seventy five million dollar unsecured claim. Uh, the SEC, which has a thirty million dollar unsecured claim, and then BlockFi's largest creditor is Ankara Trust Company, who has a seven hundred thirty million dollar unsecured claim. Who is un, who is Ankara? Do you know? I believe this is the shell. Um, so it's Encuratrus. It's a Fairfield, Connecticut-based firm, but I'm not sure. I don't want to say it's uh, the FT, the FTX shell entity. But uh, no, good question. Hmm. I actually don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. So 
we'll figure that out. We'll get back to you guys on that one. Yeah. Um, they also owe like $50 million to a client. So I think the four biggest creditors are 730 to Ankara, 275 to FTX, 49 million to a client, 30 million to the SEC. Um, yeah. What do you, th- what do you, th- any thoughts on, on BlockFi stuff? I mean, I can, curious what you find, if you find anything interesting here. On the BlockFi stuff? Yeah. I mean, BlockFi is trying to sue FTX right now for Rob, for their share of Robinhood mm-hmm. equity, I think it is, um, which is a pretty interesting deal. Yeah. Let me explain this because I tweeted about this earlier, but let me, let me pull this up because it's, I believe, uh, here. So BlockFi is a creditor to FTX that lent to Alameda. So Alameda then lent to Emergent, which is a shell company owned by SBF. So Emergent actually was the one that bought Robinhood shares. Then they pledged that as collateral to guarantee to BlockFi the loan to FTX. So that was used to bail out BlockFi. (laughs) So uh, it's a very big circular reference. Uh, And it might be confusing to listeners. But basically, like, um, you know, uh, for that particular reason... Um, BlockFi is going directly to and have has or thinks they have a claim against Emergent, which is a shell company that owns the Robinhood stake, which is fairly sizable. What is it up to four hundred million or so? Um, particularly because those shares were pledged as collateral. So when a little bit of history, right? You remember when BlockFi initially got into trouble earlier this year. Right. Um, a lot of it in part because of the GBTs, like three arrows blowing up. BlockFi had a bit of exposure to that. Um, uh, and so, and of course, now, of course, they also have a lot of exposure to the GBTCR, which three hours was doing. So, anyways, they get into trouble. FTX um, steps in um, to buy BlockFi. The terms are not disclosed, but, you know, um, they effectively took over BlockFi. And as part now, it has come to light that they used um, the emer- emergence as collateral, so the Robinhood shares as value to buy BlockFi, it seems, to bail out BlockFi. And so, um, man, unta- untangling yeah. these claims, untangling who has a claim to the shares is going to be an absolute disaster. It, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, you know, I think. Uh, Wait, is this right, Santi? Uh, so, Blo- so BlockFi is a BlockFi is a creditor to FTX that lent to Alameda, that lent to Emergent, which is a shell company owned by Sam that bought Robinhood shares. That those Robinhood shares were pledged as collateral to guarantee to BlockFi the loan to FTX to FTX that was then used to bail out BlockFi. So it's the so Sam purchased his stake in Robinhood via a shell company, via a loan from Alameda, via a loan from BlockFi. Correct. So, so in a nutshell, that- SBF used or FTX used funds <laughs> with, that with the initially goal, came from BlockFi to bail out just, BlockFi. Yeah, with the sole goal of just to get eventually, probably to get honestly Robinhood deposits to move on to FTX one day too. This yeah. is all. Will yeah. be really. Yeah, what would be really interesting here is to understand how much of in, as particular the terms of this deal, how much of that did FTX require BlockFi to move over um, and for X, like for mm-hmm. FTX to be the custodian? I mean, it sounds like FTX US was custodying a lot of the assets of BlockFi. So it'd be really curious to understand how much of that happened as part of this kind of bailout. But yeah. yeah, like it's no surprise that uh, you know now it's it's fairly obvious what the strategy was. It sounds like FTX went out and you know was bidding on these distressed um, you know deposit in, institutions like Voyager, BlockFi, really to get more deposits in the door um, and continue to running this machine because they themselves mm-hmm. were in trouble, right? And so um, you know a lot of the some of these folks might have had FTT as collateral, and they you know. In order not to push the price down for FTT, they just wanted to absorb that, right? And so that uh, this all, folks, goes back to two very cataclysmic events that really started this fall of dominoes, if you will. And it was Luna, 
um, which was probably the number one cause for a lot of this, um, you know, stuff that went on after that. Mm. A lot of people were caught really off guard. Luna lost a lot of money. And then slowly over the ensuing months, you know, it just started to come to light who was really in deep shit. And it started with three arrows and a few other funds. And then a few like Voyager, BlockFi, Genesis, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and so, and then of course, you know, ultimately FTX, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, like the natural yeah. question now is like, you know, uh, what, uh, what happens to BlockFi if they can actually recover a lot of funds, FTX US seems to be SBF. This comes actually directly from SBF. In one of the interviews, he says, there's probably one-to-one backing FTX US, you know, deposits there. Um, and there's like 25 cents on the dollar backing FTX International. Um, and then, and then, but of course, once he filed for chapter 11, you just kind of freeze all of that. And then he claims that like, you know, a few moments after he filed for chapter 11, which he didn't want to do, but his lawyers were really pressuring him to do, he got like 4 billion in the door. And that would have like allowed themselves to continue operating business as usual, Yeah, which I really find hard to believe. Um, but you know, yeah. But by the way, I looked up Ankara. There, it's not a holding company. It's an uh, it's an uh, an indentured trustee firm that rep- represents a group of unnamed creditors. So I think what this means, like this is like this is, yeah, this is the kind of company that's typically brought in to represent the interests of others. So I would assume the creditor here is not Ankara. It's um, folks that just bundled together to bundled together. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know any more than that, but it's not a holding company. So, um, yeah, you know, we've said it before, but like the, it really is, uh, quite surprising, uh, the lack of risk management from the risk teams of a lot of these places. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, embarrassing. Um, all right. Pausing. I forgot to do this at the intro. I'm going to get punished by our marketing team. Um, Permissionless ticket sales are on sale. Um, we basically the way the way that we do permissionless ticket sales for anyone who remembers this is uh, we drop them like Supreme drops clothing. We drop tickets. We don't unli- we basically unlock 250 tickets every two weeks. When the tickets sell out, tickets are closed. So our first batch sold out in six hours. Every two weeks, the the, ne- the next batch is always more expensive than the last one. I think we increase the price like five to ten percent every single two uh, every two weeks. So batch number one was was two weeks ago, sold out in six hours. Batch number two um, unlocked today. We sold sixty five tickets in thirteen minutes. Um, we, so we've got like hundred and eighty five of them left. By the time we release this podcast tomorrow, they might already be sold out. So I'm sorry about that. But you can join a wait list. So. Anyways, that's that's your plug. If you listen to Empire, there's your alpha. Go 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 get your tickets before the uh, price goes up. You going to join us this year, Santi, or next year? Yes, I think so. It's in it's in New York, Washington, right? It's in DC. Austin, Austin, Texas, oh, in September. That's yeah. from yeah, permissionless in Austin. Yeah, I love uh, Austin's a great city. We're kicking uh, coin desk out different. of the city. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, well, speaking of coin desk, are you guys going to buy it? Uniswap NFT marketplace. Uh, Uniswap. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's, is there like an audio? Yeah, must have there's a lag. Me. There's a lag, man. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely Uniswap NFTs. Uh, Uniswap uh, did launch their NFT marketplace Wednesday morning. Um, so, but here, so here's the background. So Uniswap bought Genie. Um, Genie and Gem were the two biggest NFT aggregators. Um, so basically they aggregate prices across a bunch of different NFT, uh, exchanges. Um, who bought Genie? Someone bought gem. Someone else bought gem. Did OpenSea buy gem? I think someone bought gem. Maybe not. Yeah. I'm looking this up. Yeah. I believe so. It was fairly controversial. Yeah. Yeah. OpenSea bought, OpenSea bought gem. OpenSea Uniswap, bought gem. Yeah, yeah. OpenSea bought gem and Uniswap bought Genie. So basically Uniswap launched their N, uh, NFT marketplace on Wednesday morning. Uh, so you can now buy NFTs directly from Uniswap interface. Like I went to Uniswap this morning. You just click the NFT tab. <laughs> and then once you click the NFT tab, you're going to think that you just hit OpenSea's page. 
because it looks identical to OpenSea, but really you're trading on uh, you're trading on Uniswap. They aggregate liquidity from every major NFT exchange. I think there's seven or eight of them. Uh, they also really interestingly op- open source their front end, which is pretty cool. Um, they open they open source the the actual interface, not just not just the uh, protocol. Um, by the way, like for those, if you want the reason that you like that you like aggregators. Um, is because you're going to get the best pricing or you're going to get the cheapest prices. You might not have the best execution, but you're going to get the cheapest prices. So like uh, OpenSea's aggregator pulls prices from OpenSea, uh, excuse me, Uniswap's aggregator pulls prices from OpenSea. What is it? X2, Y2. I've never used that one. PseudoSwap looks rare. It, it all pulls into the Unis, into yeah, Uniswap. From all the different marketplaces. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fairly interesting. Um, I think uh, over the last couple of years, uh, over the last year we've observed People, um, other marketplaces eat into OpenSea's dominance because it, it used to be where OpenSea was just incredibly dominant, uh, and now that uh, has come down over time. Uh, it will also be interesting to see how many, how much activity uh, is increased because of these aggregators, making it very easy to sweep floors. But um, you know, uh, and, and the functionality of can you buy a specific NFT? Because a lot of times, I think there are very different types of collectors. Um, you know, whether you want to buy a specific NFT and you just want that and you're like less price sensitive or other people that are just doing it more so from like, a, hey, I want to buy a, a basket. Yeah, yeah. Long Azuki's or punks. And so anyways, it's going to be fairly interesting. All this to say it's fairly nascent. And the other thing that uh, I mean, we we had the Solana guys this week and we interviewed the episode's going to go uh, out next week. And it's really interesting. I think the. We talk a lot about, obviously, DeFi being in a bear market for the last two years, all this sort of chaos that has happened because, you know, FTX and prices and the volatility in the market. But one of the interesting things that has been just observing the NFT space is in large part just been, it's certainly been affected, like volume and whatnot, but like new collections launching across different ecosystems. And it seems to me like it's just been a fairly interesting quasi-insulated pocket of the crypto market because I don't even think about NFTs <laughs> as correlated to the rest of the crypto market. I think it's just uh, it's just adding more diversity and type of users that, uh, you know, it's been fairly interesting to observe, um, you know, yeah. that phenomenon. You I don't know if you would agree with that. No, I would agree. I mean, Solana NFTs are hitting like all-time highs right now, which is bizarre. Or at least maybe volume of NFTs on Solana is all-time high, and like mints are still selling out. It's kind of wild. Also, shout out Permies. The floor on Permies has gone up from 1.5 to 2.5 in the last 30 days. Like that's, yeah, it's just nuts to see this. Um, I love the move by Uniswap. I think this is genius. I, as a retail NFT user, like it's not, Uniswap's now the best place to go buy buy NFTs, I think. Meltem had this great piece that I have referenced on a couple of shows about like the institutions are coming to NFTs. I think what Uniswap rolled out does not solve that. Um, like the execution is probably maybe subpar. I think like, but I think they're going to win in the NFT. I think they'll do really well in the NFT space and the same reason they did well in the DEX space, right? Like other DEXs might be more technically efficient at specific things like MEV protection or like LSD liquidity or like have better token better token economics. But like I think Uni's brand and vertical integration is gonna is gonna just be really powerful here. And I think folks will end up using Uniswap for for to buy NFTs. I I, I love the move. I think it's a great move. So when are they rolling out their app? Do you know? Their mobile app, Uniswap? Yeah, I think they've been public about that. Yeah, no clue. I mean, it's a great question because you're now coming up to a pretty big contentious debate around Apple and how guarded and difficult they've made it for certain players or all players in the industry, including today. You know, we we, we now learned that, you know, they're, they're charging 30% on the Coinbase wallet and, you know, there's been a fair, again, in the Solana episode, we covered this a lot of the reason of existence. The launch of phone is for this reason, right? To like really circumvent and get away from, you know, really the, it's not just crypto firms. I mean, a lot of other developers outside of crypto found it incredibly difficult to work with Apple and around Apple is like really tough and oftentimes like just unnecessarily difficult 
policies, procedures, and sometimes they don't give you straight answers. And you know, the crypto space has really suffered, I think, um, on the mobile side of things um, because, you know, just Apple has such, uh, you know, an important gatekeeper role here. Um, so, but I don't, I don't know when Uniswap is launching their, their app. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, One of the interesting things, it, the last thing on this point is yeah. that I learned from the Solana episode was, you know, obviously they're, they're building the, the hardware through like a, you know, kind of like a normal manufacturer. Their real focus is building this like mobile stack SDK, initially purpose-built for Solana, but Anatoly did say, you know, if we want to integrate other chains like Ethereum or, had, you know, um, EVM support, certainly possible. So, yeah, I think this is going to be a huge, you know, positive for the space. Apparently, it's launching soon. I mean, there's a few out in the wild, but they were saying this time around next year, they plan to have, you know, anywhere from 50. He said having 100,000 kind of like phones out in the wild would be kind of like a, a, a huge success. So, uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting how that changes the dynamic uh, and how Apple responds to that pressure. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I thought it was pretty funny that OpenSea just, uh, excuse me, Uniswap kind of blatantly copied OpenSea's design as well. Have you looked, have you pulled it up? If not, you should pull it up. You go mm -hmm. to Uniswap and pull up NFTs. It, it literally, literally looks identical to OpenSea. It reminded me of um, like when, when Microsoft basically comes, gets into the software game. They're never first, but they basically just copy pasta what others have done. And um, mm -hmm. if you look at what, like when Microsoft launched their version of Notion, it was a literal yeah. copy pasta of, of, of Notion. Same with Slack, right? When they copied Microsoft Teams, basically mm -hmm. one and the same, you know, just throw the Microsoft logo on there. So. Yeah, or when they, you know, it comes full circle. Sushi copied, and a lot of other AMMs have copied the front end of Uniswap because people are just really familiar with it. And now they're go out and copy the same. So look, it's the world yeah. of open source. Uh, good design gets copied. There you go. Um, let's go into the app, the Apple NFT Coinbase NFT. I just want to read the Coinbase tweet. Let's see. Let me pull this up. Um, all right. So Coinbase wallet tweeted out earlier today. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, you might've noticed you cannot send NFTs on Coinbase wallet iOS anymore. This is because Apple blocked our last release until we disabled the feature. Apple's claim is that the gas fees required to send NFTs need to be paid through their in-app purchase system so they can collect 30% of the gas fee. I'm laughing because if you understand how NFTs work, this is not possible. Apple's proprietary in-app purchase system does not support crypto. So also they couldn't even comply if they tried, right? And as Coinbase points out, this is akin to Apple trying to take a cut of fees for every email that gets sent over open internet protocols, which actually, yeah. oh, never mind, never mind. I was going to say it could be a good idea because it would prevent spam emails, but <laughs> never mind, not going to go there. Here's a, um, here's a hack. What's the hack? Yeah, so here's the hack, guys. If you're a team out there, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. Give people that are on mobile a free NFT or a free airdrop and gasless to claim so that you don't have to work around or have a, even a payment of sorts. And then, or have them like just visualize like, oh, you've earned a badge, you've earned an NFT, or you can claim an airdrop. In order to claim it, you can only do it on desktop. And this is what Musk is doing with Twitter, right? The Twitter Bloom subscription, he basically disabled that on mobile, I understand. And you can only sign up on desktop purely to circumvent this egregious, like 30% fee, right? And so in the same similar manner, if you're a game, if you're an NFT collection, people are on mobile, they're going to increasingly just try to do something in mobile and interact with these things. You know, send them, give them an incentive and design your flow so that you, you have a sufficiently strong hook on mobile for them to go to desktop, claim it, and do the, the whole MetaMask experience or whatever, Phantom Wall, whatever you're using, uh, hardware, whatever. So hmm. so then you, you kind of, because I don't think it's going to be, as much as we complain about this, I don't think that Apple is going to meaningfully change their stance on crypto. Just, you know, certainly like antitrust yeah. chats and... You know, they might get pressured from regulators and yada, yada. But as far as I can tell, this debate has been going on for years. And it's yeah. not just crypto. A lot of people and developers have complained about Apple just 
making their life difficult. To be if, 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 if Congress wants to do, yeah, if Congress wants to do something useful here, they would open up the app stores instead of uh, trying to regulate crypto here. They would they would un- unlock the app store. So uh, it's just funny because like that's not this is not even if they wanted <laughs> to do this, this is not even technologically possible. No, uh, it just it. Yeah, it just feels funny because like Apple is always so advanced with tech. Like I, I got the got the new iPad yesterday actually, and it was like just this amazing tech experience. They just they've never been able to have a good take on crypto. They've never been able to understand it, or actually they've obviously never mind. That's a bad take. They do understand it. They just want to control it. So it just feels like they want to be basically an overlord on on crypto transactions yeah i mean too this is also the innovators dilemma right they have no incentive to going first no incentive to support crypto when they can you know they don't want to jeopardize their big business right crypto is still a very small drop in the bucket for anyone right yeah so they have it's like yeah. a classic innovators dilemma also you i mean you, you you probably see the same thing too there's a lot of companies that are dealing with this in crypto right now but nobody wants to talk back to apple is Ed, like big shout out to, to coinbase for for actually posting this thread most startups are too small to to want to air their grievances against Apple at the risk that it's just too could be too detrimental to their business to not ever be able to launch. So mo- a lot of companies are dealing with this; they just don't air it out in, in public. So yeah, yeah, I mean, Apple is basically trying to be the ultimate, you know, MEV extractor, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by sending NFTs on mobile, they're taking a thirty percent cut. I mean, that's uh, yeah. Maybe they yeah. should run their own validators. By the way, this is a sign that, like, I don't, I don't know. I was really bearish on the Solana phone, getting more bullish, and you'll see. We we had this conversation with Anatoly and and, and Ben uh, from Solana mm-hmm. drops on Monday. Um, Got to decentralize not just the software stack but the hardware stack too. So, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Alrighty. What's next? HUD eight or? Kraken or Casa. Let's do HUD8 for a second and then we can move past it. So HUD8 is a public Bitcoin miner. They were forced to, according to them, they were forced to turn off 20% of its of their total hash power, about 5,800 miners. They had to turn off 5,800 miners. What they said is it was due to a disagreement with an energy provider. Um, it is total speculation. I'd My take would be that this is not due to a disagreement with an energy provider. But it, rather, it's just because mining Bitcoin right now is not profitable with where with where Bitcoin's price is at. I, I really don't know anything. They, they, I could be totally wrong. But in general, it's been a rough year for HUD eight, right? They have a, they had a, they have a, I think a two hundred million dollar market cap around there. They their stock has dropped more than eighty five percent this year. Um, they reported a loss of twenty three million Canadian dollars compared to a profit of twenty three a profit of twenty three million a year earlier. Um, they have. I don't know. It's like we talked about in the, that episode a couple of months ago. Like, what really hurts Bitcoin miners is when they, when the people running the company have this like hodl, hodl, hodl mentality. That's not a treasury management solution. Mm-hmm. Um, HUD eight has publicly pledged to hold on to all of their Bitcoin despite the tough market conditions. It just like feels like a yeah. funny thing to do. It's like that you don't need to hodl, hodl, hodl. Like just. Take, take care it's, of your business. Yeah, I mean, it's like a it's like an energy producer like uh, storing and holding on to their natural gas or oil. Like, it, I've always found the mining business incre- incredibly difficult and not as attractive as holding the underlying. I think if you were to do run certain returns around investing in miners or spinning up your own mining farm, requires a lot of capital, a lot of capex investment into ASICs. The depreciation schedule of ASICs. And these specialized hardware to mine Bitcoin is fairly short. You never get a sense that you have an advantage because the manufacturers, bit mains of the world probably are like mining Bitcoin ahead of you and then selling you like, you know, the equipment after. You're also exposed to like wild fluctuations in energy prices and regulators clamping down on you because, uh, you know, the narrative is super strong, right? Anytime energy prices go up, they blame the miners. This happened in Pennsylvania. This happened in New York, probably Ontario. Teachers Pension Fund is putting pressure as well, right? So it's never like people don't really understand how energy gets produced and like how energy storage works and how actually miners have played a huge role in like taking unused energy in the grid to then mine. Nonetheless, a huge rant. All this to say is I've never found the mining business really profitable. Like, if you look at the oil and gas sector, back in my days in investment banking, like the the most profitable like 
places to invest along the continuum of like from exploration to distribution, it was never like, like it, it was never like what the miners do. I think it's really like a lot of the transportation and refining of the commodity is mm. where a lot of the value gets made. In this case, what does that mean for big for crypto exchanges distribution, right? They take the raw commodity and then they sell it and then distribute it, right? Um, and so I think miners just really take a beating, right? Because it's very hard to manage treasury, you know, manage that treasury. Um, and it's increasingly competitive. And, and oftentimes you're competing against jurisdictions like in Mongolia and Siberia, like in Russia, like it's, it's in yeah. the Nordic circle. It's like very, very difficult. So, yeah, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, minor uh, dynamics and also in the Nick Carter episode that aired last week. So, you know, for anyone that really wants to listen to that, they should, uh, they should, um, yeah, they should listen to that because the natural <laughs> gut reaction is, wait a minute, miners are having a really hard time. Oh shit. This means that like the Bitcoin network is going to go down and it's false. It's not, there are certain adjustments in the difficulty rate and whatnot. And we've seen these moments before where miners have a hard time and there's an adjustment. So, and a relocation of miners. So <laughs> did, Santi, did uh, you it see happens my, a lot uh, in China too. Do you see my Twitter? You see my tweet about Bitcoin security model? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I did, by the way, that you should, yeah. Why don't you talk about that? Because we've talked about it a number of times in other episodes yeah uh, who was it when we talked about it with eric Voorhees, right he's yeah. we talked about it and he basically was like no like this is something that is too far like let's just kick the can down the road and i don't think that's going to be the case the teal i mean the teal we should i actually really want to do a bitcoin yeah, security do the teal deal, yeah I, I i want to do a bitcoin security episode actually um, let's spend two minutes on it now i, I mean here's time. the deal so the so at the genesis of Bitcoin, the block reward was 50 Bitcoin. Every four years that gets cut, right? So 2012, there's the first halving. The block reward got cut to 25. 2016, the halving cuts the block reward to 12.5. 2020, having cuts the block reward to 6.25. There's another halving coming up in 2024, cuts the block reward to 3.125. Every four years, it gets cut in half again, right? So 2028, it'll be 1.5625 then 78125 and it just keeps getting cut. Now, the reason that that's not that hypothetically that that is not an issue is because the price of bitcoin keeps going up, right? So then people are still incentivized to get this bitcoin. So maybe in 2016, 12.5 bitcoin uh what was worth, you know, a, th a thousand bucks or like 300 bucks um now, when you mine for Bitcoin, it's only, you only get like 6.25, but that's fine because the price has gone so up so much that it still makes it worth it. My question that I asked on crypto Twitter, I said, can someone explain how this security model scales if Bitcoin's block space doesn't continue to accrue demand? Maybe that wasn't the right question. I think maybe the best question is just like if Bitcoin's price doesn't keep, keep going up. Um, and honestly, I was not very impressed by a lot of the answers. That I think it got like hundreds of, of comments. I was not very impressed. Muneeb had a really good answer, I thought. Um, Muneeb from, from Blockstack, but there weren't really that many good answers. So but I don't know. What was his answer though? He said settlements from Bitcoin layers. He was, he, so Muneeb's whole thing is like people are gonna build on top of Bitcoin, right? So set his, which I don't agree with, but but it, it but I, you can't say no, like that's a thesis, you know? Yeah. So his what he said is that settlements settlements from Bitcoin layers can and will drive up demand for block space. You know he's saying that because you know he's saying Lightning's already doing this, the Stacks layer is already doing this. He said Bitcoin base layers for settlements and not payments. Um, the reason, I mean, I I disagree yeah, the, the with the whole thesis, convoluted but. answer has always been somehow people are going to believe that Bitcoin is super important to secure and continue, and there will be altruistic players like exchanges and maybe countries or large whales that like subsidize the security of the network, which to me is like a very unsatisfactory answer when you consider that the whole fundamental premise of crypto is to build systems that don't rely on altruism or trust of any kind. And it feels to me like the Bitcoin community should just look themselves in the mirror and have an open, hard debate and really think about these things today, not in 10 years, 
not in five years, but simply today. And look, I'll reference again, one of the best things that I heard from Anatoly when we in, um, interviewed him this week was, he said, we've taken a beating because we asked him, look, you guys have faced a lot of criticism. And he said, you know what? That's open source. And we've taken a lot of the criticisms and it has actually helped us redesign pieces of the network that were just flawed. And I'd rather hear that. I'd rather be part of a community, part of an open source network that like constantly understands that like design is not perfect and constantly wants to patch certain things. And I understand the Bitcoin camp has always been, we cannot be as flexible or as, or as fast moving as Ethereum or other networks because Bitcoin is like this hardened thing that we sacrosanct, we cannot touch marginal improvements. It's like the way the central bank communicates, right? You, the central bank doesn't communicate like an investment, like a, you know, like a public CEO. They need to be really guarded and cautious. And, you know, I understand part of that, but it's also like, I think it's a very existential crisis here. And if you're holding, if you're a Kathy Wood thinking Bitcoin's going to go to a million, I just think Kathy doesn't fundamentally understand this conundrum. Because, again, as an investor, you discount everything, you know. To today, and you say, wait a minute, I'm increasingly finding it very hard that today 99% of all the security budget of Bitcoin relies on block rewards that are just going to go down in an exponential manner and fees haven't really gone up. Hmm. And I have basically no real strong footing to understand how you're going to bridge that gap other than maybe someone... Kathy Wood of the world or an exchange or ZZ decides to bail us all out. Well, you know what, folks? I don't think crypto is designed to be bailed out or rely on altruism. Look, I, look I, I, I don't want to fund Bitcoin too much here because I... I'm not funding it. I'm just... No, I, no I, I know. I know. I know. Um, here's, my, here's my frustration with the thing I tweeted. The overwhelming response was, Bitcoin is a global neutral currency with immutable, immutable monetary policy. How would you say that that is not worth expending effort to earn forever? I'm like, uh, that is. It's really important to keep that going. But like, what's the monetary incentive to keep that going? Um, someone's got to be. Someone's got to be incentivized. Um, uh, at the end of the day, people are rational economic beings, and if they can transition over to another network and make more money, you're going to do that now. This is not to say that Ethereum is perfect. Look, there is some very valid criticism around proof of stake and censorship and and concentration of validators. Like, I understand that and I get it. And we we will talk. It's not the right kind of episode to talk about it. But I think as we look forward to next year, I think this should be an ongoing discussion yeah, around I agree. how does your network accrue value and how does your network have a sustainable security budget? I think proof of stake networks have certain tendencies towards clustering and centralization. I think any network in general has these tendencies, but we need to kind of think about at least proof of stake to me has always felt a more aligned system that actually has a viable security model. But then you also have to focus on, okay, censorship and, and working around like, you know, when you have nefarious actors and validation of that and censorship of transactions, totally get it. And we should talk about that. But from a security budget perspective, I think you're at least working from a solid foundation that the network can be secured. I'm moving past it. Moving on. We're, we're going to do some episodes on Bitcoin security because I'm curious about it. All right. Last two things I want to talk about. One is Kraken did some layoffs. Uh, heart goes out to folks at Kraken. They laid off, uh, I think it was 1,100 people. Um, thir about 30% of the company. Jesse Powell tweeted out, rough day at Kraken, headcount rolled back 12 months. Macro was already tough. We held out, but recent industry, wo recent industry woes diminished near-term optimism about a crypto rebound. We're better positioned now. Glad we were able to take care of our former colleagues. I think he was referring to like severance and benefits and things like that. So it's been a pr privilege to work with you all. My, uh, David Sachs had this tweet. Actually, I won't show the Basically, David Sachs had this tweet. He said, for the last decade, per, per seat pricing has been a huge tailwind for software companies. As seat expansion was the norm, that trend is going to go in reverse over the next year. As seat contraction becomes the baseline. 
Um, this other guy, Dare Obasanjo, had a tweet, tech sector layoffs are high relative to other industries because every other industry shrank during COVID while tech companies grew as people use tech products more during lockdown. We're simply seeing a reversion to the mean and an elimination of pandemic hiring spikes. So I think there's just big reversion <laughs> to the mean going on right now. Everyone's doing layoffs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, shout, shout out to Kraken folks. People are taking a hint at Elon's playbook of coming in, cutting a bunch of the workforce and then... Saying okay, how, how bloated are these organizations? Now, yeah, yeah Kraken. I think yeah. has been. I don't want to intimate that Kraken's bloated. I think the crypto industries have been hit harder. Yeah, uh, Elon's about to yeah. create a playbook for creating a profitable, uh, creating a profitable <laughs> yeah. tech company, and uh, I think people are going to follow suit. Yep. Um, yeah, right, let's, uh, Mike. Yeah. Look, uh, Mike Dudas had a great tweet. Mike, Mike, Mike can be pretty uh, to the point and like in a very funny way. He said. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, what is it? Box has been, you know, the CEO box has been fairly critical of crypto and he claims to have all the answers. Uh, they, and basically all, they all revolve around web three as a scam, but somehow his company's never been profitable in all its years of existence. So, Hey, maybe just, just focus on your goddamn unit economics instead of, you know, shitting on this industry. Cause I'll tell you what name for what it's worth. Uniswap. A company, Uniswap Labs, with a handful, and I'm talking like 20, 30, less than 100 employees, I think 50. And the scale that they got, and at points in time, having more volume and speed generation, revenue generation, and certainly profitability per headcount than Coinbase. And that is a power, like anyone that comes out there, any Web2 CEO listening. Okay, guys, let's have a debate. Pound for pound, a Web3 protocol... I don't want to call it a company, but a protocol is infinitely and as and Web3 protocols have been proven to be highly more scalable, profitable out of the gate than any other kind of Web2 company. Like, like, period. Yeah, you call you and then they're going to they're going to take a stab at, oh, this is all speculation and casino money. Guys, it's a business model. Gaming, we sell NFTs, we sell games, you sell the people the ability to swap assets, whatever. But the profitability and the scalability of Web3 on a unit economic basis beats 99% of Web2 companies. And this is the power of permissionless, you know, distributed networks uh, that reach the entire world in a very frictionless way. Now, some people might call our regulatory arbitrage, yada, 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 but still, it is a very, like, Uniswap is a very viable business model. Um, more so than a traditional exchange. And yeah, so anyways. We're back to fundamentals of like, we need to focus on unit economics. And I think all I'm trying to say is Web3 businesses have really interesting web like unit economics. Uh, for any fundamental, everyone now is putting on their fundamental investor hat. Okay, guys, I came in in this industry being a fundamental SaaS investor, and I found unit economics to be one of the more interesting things and less talked about things in this industry. But I hope it gets more attention because it's really fascinating what you've observed in all these protocols. Uh, OpenSea even too. It's like, you know, hybrid company. Last thing, then we'll wrap this up. Uh, Jameson Lop and the Casa team, big shout out to Nick over there too, announced uh, an expansion. in. Our, I'll, just, I'll just read Jameson's thing. Uh, today, Casa is excited to announce an expansion in our self-sovereignty as a service offering. We're bringing our best-in-class user experience to cold storage for ETH holders. Why is Casa adding ETH support? Why now? Due to demand from current and prospective clients? That's why. There's clearly a gap in the market for folks who have a need to easily and safely self-custody significant amounts of value across BTC and ETH via one seamless interface. So for those who don't know, so Casa is this great platform. Love, I, I love Casa. Um, great, great platform to be able to self-custody your Bitcoin. Make it really, really easy to create a, to create a multi-sig to self-custody your Bitcoin. They never had anything else. They never let you do ETH or any other asset. And one of the reasons for that, I would assume, not kind of just reading between the lines, I've hung out with Nick and Jameson a little bit, but uh, just reading between the lines here is they've got their, the, the, their user base are these like hardcore Bitcoin maxis. So if you are running the company, you have to make a decision. Do we, do we expand assets, get ETH people on board and risk really making our core user base angry or do we just focus on our core user base and this is casa saying 
we're willing to make our core user base, some of these hardcore Bitcoin maxis angry to expand. Um, and this is just one of the cool things about the industry, like about bear markets is that people, I think people do what's right for their business. Um, mm -hmm. And, and yep. also, in, and also protocols come together and the industry comes together. So cost of supporting ETH yeah. is I think representative of, the, of that. Um, and just like, man, I just, these Bitcoin maxis are a complete joke in my mind. I'm just going to say it. Like I'm reading some of these people were not shitting. just Bitcoin maxis, just maxis in general. People, people were shitting. People are shitting on Casa. I know that team decently well at this point. Amazing people. Like they're tweeting out. Like I'm just going to read some of these. Sacrificing your morals is absolutely not acceptable. Like, uh, like how you know Jameson? Like you, like you, you three years ago would be so upset out. about this. I'm like. Oh my God. Like people are like, fuck Casa, a yeah. bunch of LARPs called it since the beginning. Like you, and I'm like, this is absurd. I love Casa. Shout out Casa. I, I used to use Casa actually, but I stopped because they didn't support ETH. So maybe yeah. I'll, maybe I'll use like Casa. A, again. Uh, I hope this is a part of a bigger trend, which is depoliticizing the industry. We've become so I understand we're all tribal species inherently and we, we have affiliations. It's one thing to be tribal. It's another to be just a toxic maximalist, really rigid in your thinking. And I hope we like, we move away from that. If we can learn something in this bear market is let's just go back to fundamentals. And the, the principle, the objective should always be furthering decentralization. And no matter what shape or form, color it comes in. Um, and I think... The fact that cost of sending support for Ethereum is positive for Ethereum. It's positive for the decentralization of Ethereum. And I think that is that is the most important thing. If you're a Bitcoin, you don't necessarily have to believe in Ethereum to believe in why they're doing this, is to bring more diversity into an ecosystem that needs it. And I think anyone can be kept behind that. So I would say that if anything, they're just staying true to their morals of enabling people um, to self-custody. Um, and hopefully, you know, and that is positive for the space. And so anyways... Um, yeah, I hope we can be less tribal, less, less max, less like toxic coming out of all this bear market. I think it, this market has humbled a lot of people. And I think, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we have to all experience pain to learn, but you're seeing other people really, uh, you know, experience pain. And so take that and learn from that. And hopefully we can all, you know, I don't want to say kumbaya and band together. But just remind yourself of the morals and why, why you're doing this. And I mean, I think the Casa's yeah. mission and what why they're doing this, you know, is not a betrayal in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, in bull markets, us versus them is protocol versus protocol. And in 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 so, bull markets, it's uh, protocol versus protocol. In bear markets, it's crypto versus everyone else. So um, yeah, yeah, up against. Definitely. What are you watching back there? What, what's on TV? What am I? What am I? I'm like uh, enjoying. The, is that it's, Biden? It's, it's Bloomberg. I, I love Bloomberg. You have Bloomberg like, all the time, huh? All the time, all the time. Huh. I love it. In fact, this is why uh, it's been now more interesting in the whole FTX drama. They've their coverage of crypto has gone up dramatically, and I've been fairly surprised at the commentary. Like a lot of they have a crypto. Like every day they have a crypto sequence, like an, a show dedicated to crypto. And I think they do a fairly good, you know, uh, coverage. And um, unlike the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they've, yeah. they've increasingly like really, I, I think I've been fairly impressed. Like they've been calling FTX like, and, and understanding the difference between that and decentralization and why decentralization matters. Like, yeah, Bloomberg, Bloomberg, no, Bloomberg's done a really good job at it. Other, other media companies have not done a good job. I think I have a feeling we'll see. Uh, <laughs> Other media brands lay off their crypto teams as well. Like I think the um, mm -hmm. crypto editorial teams and like crypto reporters at yeah. mainstream publications are going to face some tough times over the next several months as, as those teams. I mean, we yeah. saw it in 2018, 2019. It's going to happen again. The, the way it works, by the way, is like if you're a, I'm, I'm going to make up names here, but like a Vox or a Business Insider and you launch a crypto team, you're going to go to like an eToro or a, an exchange and like sponsor the, the year of ads for on like your crypto on your crypto pages um they're they're going to struggle to sell those ads to crypto advertisers yeah. right now and they're going to not mm -hmm. be able to make a business uh business case for having crypto teams same thing that happened in 2018 yeah. 2019 so yeah yeah the other uh, publication that's been fairly 
you know, objective or increasing the sales of Financial Times. Basically, all non-U.S. Um, <laughs> non-U.S. Well, I mean, of course, blog works, but you know, main like non-crypto-native uh, news outlets. I think Bloomberg, Financial Times, fairly good. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Shall we wrap? Yeah, I think so. By the way, a shout out. Um, well, one recommendation, not a book. Um, I recently started watching Playlist on Netflix, which is the like a mini series on the founder of Spotify. Uh, mm. It's really good, actually. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty good uh, history of of, uh, of music, the music industry, Spotify. Mm. I think crypto people would love would enjoy it. You know who I met yesterday was um, Alex Bloomberg. He started Gimlet, and they sold to uh, they sold to Spotify. He's telling me some interesting stuff about Spotify. It's a uh, it's a tough business model, but yeah, yeah, pioneers in their own right. I think back in the day, yeah, the, sure, and then you know Spotify. Yeah, um, um, I'm reading that. I'm reading River of oh. Doubt about Teddy Roosevelt going down the Amazon, uh, exploring oh. the Amazon. Really interesting. You know who inspired me was um. Man, long week. Been bad with names recently. Um, who's the uh, One River guy? Eric. Um, Eric Peters, survival guy. Eric Peters. Yes, he. Uh, remember at the end, he's like, "Yeah, my favorite books are survival books." So I read. Uh, I re- yeah, I read. I read. Uh, I read River of Doubt by Teddy Roosevelt. I'm almost done with it. Really good book. Would definitely recommend it. Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. absolute stud. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, speeches of all time. Actually, my favorite is "Man in the Arena" by Man Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Fantastic. Yeah. Man in the Arena. And I guess on survival books, Endurance, the, history, the story of Shackleton. Oh, yeah. Shackleton. Um, like, unbelievable. Probably one of the best. Uh, yeah. All the, like, uh, Antarctic and North Pole expeditions are, like, I have a, I love these things. But yeah. Endurance is a really good one, too. All right, folks. Um, That's it. Hopefully right, there's folks. permissionless tickets still available. If not, you can go to the page and get the wait, get on the wait list. Um, Santi, I hope you got your ticket. No way you're getting in free after you rugged yeah. us last year. Um. It's like, what? <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Okay. I deserve it, I guess. It's the first of December, folks. So, uh, you know, we're coming into the end of the year. We're going to have some really good episodes coming up, including some prediction episodes. End of year. Well, end of year reflection to see how bad my predictions, I think worse than probably anyone's been, including Jason beat me to this. And then a look, uh, we'll attempt to do a crystal ball into next year. Uh, but look at this space. We can't even predict what's going to happen tomorrow. So anyways, guys, it's, yeah. it's going to be uh, a fun well, episode. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I hope you all have a good weekend. Uh, good rest of your Friday. If you're listening to this on Friday, good weekend. And we'll see you Monday for the episode with Anatoly and Ven from Solana. Mm-hmm.